we in the end times? Is it all about to end? The world seems really preoccupied with the year 2012. Movies and books and websites. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zucharin. We're going to discuss this phenomenon today with an expert on end times. My name is Kevin Harris. I want to remind you that we have resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism at our website, evidenceandanswers.org evidenceandanswers.org. Today, part two of our interview with Dr. Mark Hitchcock on 2012. Last week, we really talked about a lot of the downright hysteria, uh, if not interest, surrounding 2012 and this whole phenomenon. Uh, not only the movie, but various websites that have come up all over the place. And uh, Pat, it's great to get back with Mark Hitchcock and talk to him some more. Mark, I've noticed that Fox News and some other outlets have interviewed you. How have they treated your views of, of 2012, since you have kind of a, a biblical view of eschatology or end times? Well, they're very respectful towards it. I mean, I think they're fascinated by it, you know. I mean, you know, they can look out there and see how interested people are, you know, in the future and in these kinds of things. I mean, you know, there's so many movies out there about all this. you got 2012, you know, you had that movie, uh, you know, The know, uh, Knowing, I think it was called. Yes. I mean, all these disaster movies of Day After Tomorrow and, you know, the I Am Legend movie. And then there's this movie now, the post-apocalyptic, you know, movie The Road, you know, from Cormac McCarthy's uh, book. So, you know, there seems to be a lot of interest. And, in, you know, they're, they're, they're fascinated by it, really. I mean, they're, they're very interested and they're, they've always been very respectful of my view. You know, of course, of course, the biblical view, when you put it in contrast to 2012, looks very good. I mean, because the 2012, a lot of this stuff is is uh, actually pretty fanciful. Pat and I have discussed in past shows, when I was in my teens in the 70s, and the late great planet Earth was the number one bestseller of the decade, I found in retrospect that it kind of gave me uh, a negative view of the future. I thought that time was running out, and I find myself, uh, I found myself not planning as much. And even though I knew that it was the second coming of Jesus, whom I loved and uh, wanted to see, there's still something very disturbing about thinking that you just don't have any time and it's about to run out. I worry about uh, my own sons and uh, the young people today who look at this phenomenon. Well, you know, I, I was around with Late Great Planet Earth came out and a lot of those things. There really was a lot of focus on prophecy and people thinking about the, the future and the end times. But, you know, prophecy in the Bible is really always given in, in the Scriptures to motivate us uh, to really live for the Lord, to have a sense of urgency in our lives. You know, to me, there's a, a balance there with all of these kinds of things. You know, none of us knows when the Lord is coming back, and that's one of the key truths in the Bible. So we we plan as if the Lord, you know, won't come back for 50 years. I mean, in a sense, you know, I have retirement. The Bible tells us, you know, in the book of Proverbs to, you know, look at the ant and store up and, you know, take care of things. So I, I don't know when he's coming, so I do those things. But we're also to live with a sense of urgency, though, and hold things lightly, I think, in this world, not with a, you know, a firm grip upon this world, because we realize that he could come back at any time. So I think it's a balance there, but I find it, to me, to be a motivating uh, truth in my life, really, to, you know, be about his business, be living for him, because he could come any time. Yes, folks, we're talking with Mark Hitchcock. Mark is a pastor in Oklahoma and holds a Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary and has written over a dozen books on eschatology or end times theology. Now, we've been talking about uh, views of 
uh, apocalyptic views from different religions and different civilizations, but the truth really comes from the Bible and specifically the book of Revelation. Now, Mark, when it comes to the book of Revelation, there are four primary views, the historicists, idealists, preterists, and the futurists. Could you real briefly uh, just summarize the, the four major views there? Sure. Um, the, the, the four views, the preterist view, that word preter comes from a word, a Latin word meaning past, so preterists view most, depending if they're partial preterists or all, if they're a full preterist, they see the book of Revelation as hap- having already happened. They see it as happened primarily in the events surrounding 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem. They, they believe that's what it was a prophecy concerning. So they see it as past. Historicists see it as kind of ongoing throughout the whole age. They would say between the first and the second coming of Jesus, the book of Revelation is fulfilled. Like a lot of the reformers were historicists, like, you know, Luther, you know, believed the Pope, you know, their papacy was the Antichrist. In other words, they saw these things being fulfilled in their own day. Um, the, the idealist view is kind of timeless. It's not past or present. It's, it's no time. It sees the things in the book of Revelation as basically symbols. Uh, they're timeless truths. Um, that are just teaching about the cosmic struggle between good and evil that takes place. Then the futurist view holds that from chapter 4 on in Revelation, refers to future events that are yet future even in our own day. There are events that are going to happen and be unfolded in the end times. So you have a view that sees it as past, one that sees present, one that sees it really as timeless, and then one that sees it as future. And I'm a, I'm a futurist. I believe that Revelation 4 on is uh, future even to our own day. Now the futurist interprets Revelation literally while the others tend to interpret it allegorically or symbolically. Uh, Why should we interpret Revelation literally and not as allegory or symbolism? Well that's a great question and it's an important one because obviously the book of Revelation does contain a lot of symbols. It's filled with symbols, most symbolic book in the Bible. When we talk about interpreting the Bible literally, we have to be very careful about how we define that. Literal interpretation includes both, both what we would call plain literal and figurative literal. In other words, you know, a lot of things, you know, we just, if I were to say to you, you know, my dog died yesterday, that would be a plain literal statement. If I said, you know, my dog kicked the bucket yesterday, that would be a figurative statement, but you would know what I meant by that. You know, you'd know that my dog died, but I said it in a figurative way. The book of Revelation is filled with symbols, but we believe that those symbols refer to something that is literal. In other words, you know, when the rider on the white horse goes out in Revelation 6, we don't really believe a guy's going to get on a white horse and ride across the face of the earth. But that rider on a white horse is symbolic of a world ruler who's going to come forth, and he's going to uh, in, in great power and might. So... We, we believe those symbols have a referent, you can use that term, that is literal, something it refers to. And we get that from, you know, the first chapter of the book. Jesus, there's seven lampstands and there's seven stars. And Jesus says those seven lampstands are the seven uh, churches, and those seven stars are the seven angels of those churches. So Jesus is saying, look, when you see a symbol, that symbol refers to something that's literal. The lampstands are the churches, the, the stars are the are the uh, are the angels are the leaders of those churches. So 
Jesus gives us the golden key, if you will, in chapter 1 of how to interpret the book, I believe. Yes, Mark, could you give us uh, some basic guidelines into us understanding, you know, when should we be uh, looking at it symbolically and when should we be taking it literally? I mean, he talks about a like a mountain falling from the sky and uh, turning a third of the oceans into blood and all that. Do we take that literally, symbolically, and how do we know when and when not to? Well, that's, yeah, that's another good question. I think, you know, when we look at something in the scriptures, you know, if it's something that, that is, uh, uh, makes no sense if you take it literally, then we look for a symbolic uh, interpretation. You know, it says in you know, the book of Psalms, you know, the mountains are going to skip like calves or whatever. Well, we know mountains don't skip along. We know that's poetic language being used. Uh, but I take it, you know, in the book of Revelation, when things are stated like this mountain comes down into the sea, uh, something is going to come down and hit the sea and is going to make a third of the waters, you know, turn to blood. Uh, it's going to be unusual. I mean, that's what God did with the Nile River back in Egypt. Uh, you know, why wouldn't he do the same thing again? Except in Egypt, he did it on a local scale. He's going to do it on a global scale in the book of Revelation. So I take those things as literal. You know, again, other people would say, well, no, that's just symbolic of what's going to take place. But to me, you know, we've seen this before in the Bible with Pharaoh, and it was it was literal then. Why wouldn't we take it literal on a global scale? I take the numbers in the book of Revelation to be literal numbers. Uh, I take the places to be literal places. You know, the seven churches are literal places. Armageddon's a literal place. Uh, Jerusalem's a little literal place. Babylon's a literal place. Unless there's a reason, that, like in chapter 11, he says, you know, that the bodies of the two witnesses will lie in the street of the, of the city that is mystically called Sodom and Egypt. He says where our Lord was crucified. Well, obviously, if it's the city where our Lord was crucified, it's Jerusalem. But he says it's mystically called Sodom and Egypt. So he's telling you there, this isn't literal. It's not literally called those things. But when he, in other places, when he doesn't say, well, this is mystically called this, then we, I would assume you just take it literally. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated issue as we go through the book, but I think if you just read it for what it says, people can understand. I mean, most of these symbols are very easily understood uh, in the context, uh, you know, when, when symbols are used. Now, Mark, there have been several preterist scholars, several prominent ones who've been very critical of the futurist point of view. I know you've debated a few. Yes. Uh, why do you feel that the preterist view is not the strongest view here? Why couldn't it have all been fulfilled in 70 A.D.? Well, the, there are several reasons. I think one of the, the one of the most important ones to me is the book of Revelation, if it was fulfilled in 70 A.D., that means it had to be written before that. And that's what preterists say. They say the book of Revelation was written in like 65, 65. or 66 mm -hmm. A.D. Obviously, if, if the book of Revelation is a prophecy, and it's a prophecy about events in 70 A.D., then it had to be written before that. And the consistent view from church history all the way from the second century up till today, has been that the book of Revelation was written in, in about 95 A.D., right near the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian. Now, if Revelation was written in 95 A.D., which is the consistent witness of church history, then the preterist view cannot be correct. And uh, that's a, that is kind of a death knell to the view, to me, right up front. I mean, we have people in the second century who knew, uh, like Irenaeus, he knew Polycarp, who knew John. And he said it was written near the end of Domitian's reign. Uh, we have a man named Hegesippus, and uh, Hegesippus in 150 A.D. Um, says the, the book of Revelation was written uh, during Domitian's reign. Um, Eusebius, the father of church history, Jerome, who translated the, 
the uh, the uh, Old Testament into Latin, the Bible into Latin. All of these people say it was written at that point in time. Now, another reason, to me, the preterist view simply doesn't work is if you try, in my view, to take the prophecies of the book of Revelation and to take those with any degree of literalness whatsoever and put those back into 70 A.D. and the events that took place, and it simply doesn't work, uh, I don't believe. And so those are a couple of reasons. There, there are a lot more I could go into, but those are a couple of reasons why uh, I don't think uh, it's good to hold to uh, this preterist interpretation. But they're very strong and strident, uh, let me put it that way, against the, the futurist view many, many of the preterists are. Yeah, you know, one of the verses that they constantly bring up comes in Matthew 24 when Jesus is talking about his return and he talks about the signs in the sky and the sun will be dark and the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from the sky. And then in verse 34 there, he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. And so they'll look and say, see, generation is 40 years, 70 AD, you know, fits right in that time frame. So it must be the fall of the temple. How do we explain that verse? Well, there's different ways to take it. Some take it when he says this generation won't pass away. The word generation, they take it means the Jewish people. You know, this generation, this race of people, you know, won't pass away, the Jewish people. Um, The view that I take is he's simply saying that, look, once these things begin to happen, these, these signs that he's giving in Matthew 24, this generation, that is the generation that sees those signs, that generation won't pass away till those things have been fulfilled. So he's looking at the contemporary generation that sees these signs uh, being fulfilled. And, you know, the thing about it is is that the whole uh, view of preterism is obviously in A.D. 70, the, the Jewish people were destroyed. Um, their, their temple was destroyed. Their city was destroyed. And when you look at uh, Matthew chapter uh, 24, it's a passage about deliverance. Um, you know, they're going to see the sign of the Son of Man in the sky. He's going to send his angels with a great trumpet, and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. So Matthew 24 is about deliverance. It's not about their uh, ultimate destruction that happened in, in A.D. 70. So I take it he's referring to the generation that sees these things happen, not the generation that he was actually talking to at the time. Now, Mark, you know, a lot of people try to connect uh, contemporary events of what's going on with the events of Revelation. Right. Uh, Do you see anything going on presently uh, that sets the stage for the fulfillment of Christ's return? Do you think we're near? Do you think the events are falling into God's plan? Or how do you see current events? Well, I think we have to be careful. You know, to me, if we see all these current events fulfilling prophecy, then really we're no longer a futurist, we're a historicist. And that's, I think, interesting. A lot of futurists people that claim to say, oh, you know, I believe in all these future end-time prophecies, see all of them being fulfilled today, they don't realize they're actually becoming a historicist, you know, and seeing them happening now. The only prophecies that I would see today being fulfilled, you know, precisely before our eyes, would be the regathering of the Jewish people. That is a fulfillment. Now, it's not completely fulfilled yet, because they're not all back, uh, but it's in, it's in the process of being fulfilled. The other one would be apostasy in the church, because obviously apostasy in the church is a church-age prophecy. It has to be fulfilled during this age, because it has to do with, with this church age. But what I would say is, use the term you used, is stage setting. We do see the stage being set, things happening, like, like the regathering of Israel, like, uh, you know, the, the uh, European Union coming together. I mean, just the other day, you know, they finally approved the Lisbon Treaty. They now have a president of Europe. 
I mean, the Bible predicts there's going to be this leader over a reunited Roman Empire uh, in the end times. And I'm not saying the guy that there is now is the Antichrist. I don't think he is. <laughs> we see the we see the uh, machinery in place now for a man to come on the scene and become the president of, of Europe, president of this reunited Roman Empire. Uh, we see globalism today. Uh, you know, the world, uh, there has to be a global economy, a global government for the Antichrist to rule the world. And we see how that could happen today. Uh, the Bible predicts a Russian Islamic, a Russian Iranian, and other Islamic nations invading Israel in the end times. Again, we see how that could happen uh, really before our eyes. Um, the whole world is focused on the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East is the staging ground for the events of the end times, and the whole world's focused there. Another one is uh, the whole tribulation period starts after the rapture with a treaty, a peace treaty, between the Antichrist and Israel. And, you know, the whole world today is clamoring for peace, especially there in the Middle East. So these are the kinds of things I look at. I call them kind of like signposts on the road to Armageddon that are lining up that lead me to believe that Christ's coming, you know, could be very soon. No one knows how long it will be. We don't know how much longer the stage setting will last. But uh, certainly we should believe that it could be very soon. Mark, I'm curious about uh, what you think. The Left Behind series is so amazingly popular, that now uh, even secularists kind of know the score. They know that uh, there's supposed to be a rapture, and they've become more familiar with Revelation and End Times because of this, uh, the amazing success of this, this series. Do you think that this is, could be a grace of God, that after the rapture occurs, that people would go, aha, it, it did happen, and then there would be this massive turning to Christ? Or is there going to be an incredible deception that will prevent them from seeing what is going on there? Well, I think the answer to your question is yes to both of those things. I mean, according to Revelation 7, there's going to be what I call great revival during the Great Tribulation. I mean, an innumerable host have come out of the Tribulation. They've washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. I mean, it's going to show us that in, in the darkest time of history that God is still seeking and saving those who are lost. Uh, but I think there will be great deception. You know, one of the things I've wondered about, is, is, as you've pointed out, with people knowing about all these things, why would anyone ever take 666, you know? Yeah. How will they, you know, won't they know what the rapture was? Well, but I think, again, you know, the Bible says that God's going to send strong delusion upon people. You know, it could be that the Antichrist comes along and he takes credit for the rapture. And he says, look, you know, all those people that disappeared, I caused that. And you know, if you don't serve me, you're going to disappear, too. Well, see, there you go. I mean, it could be attributed to UFOs. It could be attributed to uh, a 2012-like phenomena. And so I see the stage being set for that. Or he could take credit for it again, like I said, and say, look, I zapped all these people, and if you don't follow me, I'll zap you as well. And the whole 666 as well could be part of this delusion. God's going to send upon them a deluding influence so that they'll believe the lie, you know, those who reject him. So... It's going to show the blindness and the hardness of people's hearts. In spite of knowing these things, they're going to fall for it anyway. Yeah, Mark, you know, in in one of your books, you talk about Iran, Iraq, and the Islamic invasion of Israel as a possible scenario. Tell us about that. What do you see the role these countries are playing? Well, Iran is ancient Persia. It's mentioned 35 times in the Bible, and uh, only one time is it referred to as its future. That's in Ezekiel 38, verse 5, where it talks about Persia and and, uh, uh, Kush, which is modern Sudan, as these nations that will be part of this coalition in the end times that will come against Israel. And, you know, again, I mean, you know, Persia has risen, you know, really out of nowhere, Iran, since the late 70s. I mean, it's the the hotbed of hatred for the West, for Israel. Um, It's the uh, epicenter, really, for uh, radical Islamic terrorism. 
So, I mean, you know, you've, you've got Persia right where the Bible says they will be. And uh, Iraq is, of course, ancient Babylon. And I do believe that Babylon referred to in the book of Revelation, it's referred to, uh, uh, actually there are 44 verses out of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation about Babylon, which is 11% of the material in the book of Revelation is uh, about Babylon. Uh, but I take it it's literal Babylon. Uh, it all started there after uh, after the flood at the Tower of Babel. God had, uh, you know, everybody or everybody gathered there. Satan gathered them all at Babel. They had Nimrod, this one man ruling over them. And I think it's all going to come full circle. Uh, that's kind of Satan's city or man's city on the earth. Babylon will be rebuilt. It will be a capital for the Antichrist. And so I do see significance that... All the world is focused in, in that place again, in that part of the world, the Middle East, Israel, you know, Iraq, Iran, these places. Um, that's exactly what we should expect if the end times are near. Yeah, you know, Mark, if you look at a map, I mean, Israel is just a tiny dot surrounded and vastly outnumbered by all these Islamic nations that seek to destroy Israel. You know, and one of the reasons they uh, haven't moved in on Israel is that uh, the powers of the West, especially the United States, you know, play a big part in protecting Israel. But should that uh, shield of protection go, they're primed for uh, being uh, attacked by these nations, aren't they? Well, they are. I mean, you know, we're the main nation that supported Israel. I, I think in spite of all of our sin and our problems, that's one of the reasons God has uh, continued to have his hand of blessing on our nation is because of our support for for the nation of Israel. You know, it doesn't mean we have to agree with everything they do, but we, we, we have been a friend of the Jewish people. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if... If the rapture were to take place and, you know, America were to become a second or third-rate nation overnight especially, you could see how Israel would, would be scrambling. And that's why they, they're going to enter into that covenant with Antichrist. They're going to be scrambling for some kind of cover or protection. And, uh, you know, that could even could even happen if our nation begins to uh, turn away from Israel as well. I mean, we could, we could see that, and that will be part of the further demise, I think, of America. Do you think the battle of Gog and Magog, uh, do you think that's going to occur before or after the rapture? Well, my view, you know, there's, there's a lot of views on that. That's one of the most disputed uh, points, really, among, uh, you know, futurists. When will that battle occur? There's about six different views of the timing of it. My view is that the battle of Gog and Magog will occur after the rapture, because it says there that whenever this invasion of, of Israel, this Russian Islamic invasion occurs, that Israel will be regathered to their land, and they're going to be at rest. They're going to be dwelling securely. And there's only uh, two times in Israel's future that I know of from the Bible when Israel's going to be at rest. One of them is during the millennial kingdom of Christ, obviously when he's ruling and reigning. I don't think it's going to happen then, uh, because obviously Christ will be there ruling and reigning on the earth. The only other time that I know of they'll be at peace, at least for a period of time, will be that uh, first half of the tribulation when they have this covenant with the Antichrist. So it seems likely to me that that's when it will take place. I mean, it could be a different time, but it also makes sense to me because you remember it's at the midpoint of the tribulation that the Antichrist comes on the scene finally, and he will have been around gaining power, but that's when he really takes world control and declares that he is God. And to me it makes sense that if this you know, Russian Islamic invasion has occurred and their armies have all been wiped out sometime during that first half of the tribulation, there's going to be a huge power vacuum in the world, and I think that's part of what will allow the Antichrist to come in and to fill that and, and to uh, rule the world. Well, Mark, how can people be prepared for the rapture and the return of Christ, both believers and, I guess, uh, what message can we give to those who haven't trusted Christ yet? 
Well, I think, you know, if we're a believer, I mean, we need to just live every day as if the Lord could come back. And we say that, and people say, well, how do you really do that? Well, but I mean, I think we just are conscious of it, you know, during a day, uh, different times, maybe in a morning when we get up to say, you know, perhaps today, you know, this might be the day that Jesus comes back. I don't know if it is, but it could be. And uh, have that change the way we live. You know, you, you can't think about Christ coming back today and live a life of sin and a life of not caring about people, not caring about the Lord's work. For those of us who are believers, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, we're to live with that blessed hope. For those who don't know the Lord, obviously they need to, to flee to Jesus Christ for refuge. I mean, there is a storm that's coming, and people can deny it. Uh, they can act like it's not coming. But we can see it already today. I mean, people, people have this sense in our world that the world's getting near closing time. I think that, you know, anyone listening who doesn't know Christ needs to flee to Him, come to Him, ask Him for forgiveness for their sins, trust in Him, and uh, that's the only way that we can be ready, you know, for His coming. We've been interviewing Mark Hitchcock. He's a pastor in Edmond, Oklahoma, and he has a Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's authored over a dozen books on eschatology or end times theology. And Mark, you also got a website that people can go to for more information. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's uh, Mark L. Hitchcock. Dot com Mark L. Hitchcock. It's all lowercase. And uh, yeah, I've got some information on there about 2012, about my new book. It's 2012, The Bible and the End of the World. I've got some 2012 stuff on there and some other things. I haven't been blogging as much here lately. I've just kind of left the 2012 information there, but have some other articles in there as well. But I think they'll find it to be uh, you know an interesting resource for them. Fantastic. Mark, thanks for being a guest with us these last couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. God bless you all. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zugarin. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and intellectually considers the claims of Christ in an honest and loving way. And we'd like to ask you to join us. Please support us with your tax-deductible financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. It's all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers 